welcome back. This is our seventh episode, and we have another great interview lined up for you. But before we get into it, we have some announcements to make. First, the new Political Economy of Europe podcast is now on TuneIn. You can download the app and listen to us from there. And you can also check the link in our SoundCloud page if you want to use it. We are planning to branch out to other audio platforms, including Stitcher, Spotify, iTunes, and YouTube, possibly with some video support. This is all thanks to Andrew Fogarty from UCD. He is putting a really big effort into making this podcast cooler and more professional, so big thanks to him. Okay, today we have Aidan Regan talking with Pepper Culpepper, who also came to present in our seminar series. Pepper is the Blavatnik Chair in Government and Public Policy at Oxford University. His research focuses on the intersection between capitalism and democracy, and he is the author of the book Quiet Politics and Business Power, Corporate Control in Europe and Japan, which was awarded the 2012 Steinrockan Prize for Comparative Social Science Research. Pepper is currently involved in the Banklash project, which examines changing attitudes towards banks in the aftermath of the 2008 financial crisis. In this episode, he and Aiden talk about quiet politics, the differences between and intersections of instrumental and structural forms of power, the conditions under which the economic interests of organized business lose to other voters in contemporary democracies, and the EU's response to the 2008 economic crisis. If you want additional information, as always, you can find it in our SoundCloud page or our own main webpage or the Twitter account where you can follow us for regular updates. Enjoy! Well, welcome to UCD, Pepper. It's great to have you here. It's great to see you again. Uh, for our listeners, Pepper was my mentor at the European University Institute in Florence. So. We go back a few years and I've learned a lot from Pepper over the years. Um, and your presentation today on media and bank clash is fascinating. We'll talk about that shortly. But we might go back a bit in time and talk about your book on quiet politics and business power. What does quiet politics mean? So quiet politics was about uh, a disjuncture that I was having between what I was seeing in politics um, in the areas that I was studying in the political economy and you know what my colleagues thought was happening uh, and that my colleagues had the sort of occupational disability of being political scientists like I am uh, and so therefore they imagined that there was a, a world where uh, parties were competing for the median voter um, and that was the who, who managed to put together the biggest coalition uh, to get the median voter within that coalition managed to win both in the interest group terrain uh, and in the electoral terrain, but, but the kind of electoral terrain dominated the way people were thinking about this. Um, and I was all studying, uh, I, I'd spent some time studying uh, vocational training and the role of employers in that, and I found they were quite dominant. And, and then I had moved into um, institutions of uh, corporate governance and finance, and, and they were quite dominant there. And I realized they were winning distributional battles without ever having to fight them. Um, and so uh, quiet politics was this sort of recognition of what most people who just observe politics and don't have the misfortune to study it for a living as I do um, know, which is that essentially by having politics happen in a quiet environment, business uh, has the deck loaded in its favor. Um, and, and, and I don't mean this in any nefarious way. It's that uh, 
people generally want the experts there, uh, and uh, businesses know a lot about their own businesses, and they know about you know what it's about to meet payroll, uh, and so they are called disproportionately to provide representatives to be on committees. And so, if you have committees that are happening in a quiet forum outside of the public spotlight on something that doesn't catch the public eye, um, then you have a quiet debate among experts, but in which the composition of the committee is slanted systematically, I find, in favor of business. And so that became uh, what's quiet about quiet politics. And so, of course, the contrast to quiet politics is with noisy politics, which is when people are protesting outside. Um, and when people are protesting outside, then quite a different thing happens where um, business is not just allowed to represent and say, this is what's good for growth, uh, but instead uh, other voices get brought to the table. And this sort of representation of a broader set of voices at the table tends, on average, not to be exactly uh, as conducive to business. So quiet politics, in a sense, is the way that business exercises its power, whether intentionally or not. And is it the case that within quiet politics, let's say it's about executive pay, financial regulation, arguably the engine of investment decisions that take place within contemporary capitalist economies, is it the case that business know that it's better to keep their decisions quiet and therefore they pursue particular strategies to maintain a quiet fora? Or is it just a byproduct of the way well, the economy works? So I think that varies a little bit, but I think as a broad generalization, um, business actors suspect that the quieter things are, the better for them. And I, and I rush again to say that I don't mean this um, in some sort of uh, nefarious way where things are being happen, things are happening in order to keep the public out, but um, Business knows that if it turns itself into a technocratic conversation where um, its experts are disproportionately represented, it's likely to do better. Um, and I think a large majority of business leaders know that. I've written an article recently with um, Kathy Thielen on uh, platform power that talks about how platform companies like Uber, um, like Amazon, they're quite happy to sort of take their debate to the public because they think the public is largely behind them. Um, and I don't think most businesses think most of the time uh, that if you just put what they're delivering to the public on the table, uh, the public will be behind them. And so I think that these platform companies are different because um, they are willing to go and fight in uh, public forum because they think they can win in those four, though they haven't always found it to be true. And they may um, find a renewed interest in quiet politics given some of the recent occurrences. Hmm. So you've also written a lot about the difference between instrumental and structural power. Maybe explain that difference to our listeners. So the, the difference between instrumental and structural power far precedes me, uh, and uh, very smart people have been writing about it for a long time. Um, but essentially, it was a debate in Marxism about, uh, th that emerged in sort of um, Marxist sociology and social science in the, in the 1960s um, that uh, pitted people like Ralph Miliband on the one hand, the father of the Miliband brothers who are um, no longer in British politics, um, like in, in British politics, but very much on the sideline, um, and uh, Nikos Poulantzis on the other, uh, and sort of Miliband was saying that um, it was what came to be called the instrumental power of business that was so important, that's to say all its connections, the sort of things that I write about in quiet politics, um, where uh, because uh, states uh, you know, are, are run by politicians who went to school with people who are in business. Everyone thinks like a business person uh, and business has uh, easier access um, to get what it wants. Um, and so that's kind of an instrumental view that uh, 
lobbying it, it makes business powerful because lobbying uh, business groups have lots of money. Structural power uh, was that the entire state, whether or not it's listening to business, is geared so as to uh, you know live off the back of capitalist production. Um, and so therefore, even if business is not particularly influential in the halls of lobbying and the state is ignoring business, keeping it at a distance, people operating in politics have an interest uh, in, in running the state in a way that is favorable to business. So the, the very power of the state um, depends on business doing well. And that gives business a structural power where it doesn't have to do anything. Um, and my favorite and many <coughs> people's favorite um, evocation of this is what Charles Lindblom called the punishing recoil mechanism, where uh, if you make a decision against business, uh, businesses don't have to do any lobbying, they just stop investing. Jobs go down and boink, the punishing recoil mechanism hits somebody in the face who's, um, who, who, find, who finds themselves in an electoral challenge. Um, and so that's the structural power. And uh, quiet politics is not so much about structural power, it's about lobbying. And so I became interested in thinking more about structural power when I moved into finance, where I think, um, the, the role of finance in the economy sometimes exercises a strong structural power. So in a special issue, I think, that you edited in Business and Politics on, <clears throat> on this relationship between instrumental and structural power and why we need to bring these debates back into political science, I think you made a very interesting <clears throat> point about we need to think about the relationship between instrumental and structural power as it pertains to business estate that Ultimately, what happens, structural power is a mutual set of dependencies that exist between business and state. So on the one hand, even with finance, banks are dependent upon the state to regulate and to legislate for certain policies that are within their interest. So it's not like you can have one without the other. And I think that's an interesting observation because often when we think about structural power, it can lead to the observation that, well, there's nothing we can do. Business runs the show and business has the threat of capital flight. And therefore, we ought to reduce capital income, corporate tax to 0% effectively because they're going to move around anyway. So we basically have to do what they want. But that underestimates the extent to which business depends upon government. That's right, because uh, business makes its money in markets. And if it makes its, a lot of its money in one market, um, then uh, that leads to a certain dependency on the state. Right? This is something that... Um, Marxist scholars wouldn't tend to emphasize as much, but uh, it, it, it tends to be something that, that can be quite important. Uh, and so the, the whole point of that um, special issue, which has been part of a, one part of a flowering of, of, of things going on in structural power, I'm going to a conference in structural power that's being run by a, a bunch of exciting scholars uh, next month in, um, in London at the LSE. Um, so there's a lot of things flowering in people who work on uh, you know, how finance is being regulated in a variety of markets that's finding the structural power um, way of doing analysis uh, very intriguing. But it's exactly because it's not the, this, this old-fashioned idea that I think is wrong, that business wins all the time, but that there, are, there is this mutual set of dependencies, and we can understand a lot by understanding what business gets from the state and therefore how it becomes dependent on the state and vice versa. So under what conditions does business lose? Well, business loses um, in a couple of different situations. Most obviously, business loses in democracies when people mobilize en masse against business uh, and demand different policy from governments. Um, so this has long been the holy grail of understanding um, how public opinion can make, uh, make for responsive politics, how you get people involved when their interests are at stake but they don't necessarily know it, how you can activate um, latent opinion, uh, as one of my colleagues likes to call it. Um, 
And that's something that, I'm, that I'm, I, I sort of begin to explore in a quiet politics, how you raise the salience of certain issues that are actually quite important, that as long as people aren't paying attention and considering them important and considering voting on this basis, well, um, politicians have little reason to pay attention to, to public opinion. Um, so that, I think, is the, is the biggest place where um, business does lose. Um, and, you know, business loses even if the public is not massively mobilizing against it when it's facing um, other strong interest group allies uh, because there are other interest groups and what, you know, of course, other interest groups are always trying to bring the public in um, to create what uh, Gunnar Trumbull calls, you know, legitimacy narratives that bring a lot of um, other interest groups along if they don't, even if they don't grab public opinion um, and they allow for a coalition to win against something that, that, um, that my favorite business and of course, business loses when it's divided. Business is often divided. Business isn't always on the same side. Um, and so when business is divided, that's a situation where you'll get businesses pushing different positions. And so business, by definition, can't win if business is divided. Mm. So in terms of the first one, the media, you think, plays an important role. If the media is making an issue salient, getting people talking about it, pushing an issue from quiet to noisy politics, it can open up the debate for potential contestation. So I don't think I, the locution uh, media makes uh, something salient is not one I would use because I would say instead that uh, the media, where, where there are competing sources of media, um, they are constantly trying to speak to what the public wants and to get more clicks, to, uh, to sell more newspapers in old-fashioned language. Um, and doing that requires you know, speaking to what people want to hear. And that's saying figuring out what they think is salient and trying to sell it to you or figuring out something that they think would be salient if the people knew about it. And that's what investigative journalism, I think, often does so importantly. So media is really a, a, a relay mechanism uh, between politics and public opinion. Uh, and it's, it's the crucial mechanism by which um, people find out about uh, what's going on in Washington, in London, in Brussels. Uh, and it's also where uh, people in Washington and London and Brussels figure out what people care about because they figure out what the newspapers are talking about, what, uh, you know, what, what uh, the TV programs are covering, and, and, and they, they respond to that sort of pressure. Mm. Um, and so it's figuring out um, that relay of information that I think is the important um, challenge in understanding, understanding how public opinion gets brought into politics. So do you think the media shapes public opinion or the media just responds to public opinion? So that's a great question on which there's a lot of research and there are few solid answers. Uh, one of the things I'm doing in this project I'm currently working on is, is trying to explore that both by looking at um, how media coverage changes over time in different countries in, in this particular subject for looking at financial regulation um, and seeing how that is related to the policy change that you get um, and where public opinion stands on issues um, and trying to think about how much there is a reservoir of outrage that can be drawn on. If you're looking at financial crisis as a moment of great outrage in which many people in many countries felt like um, financial institutions in particular got bailed out and many other people like homeowners didn't get bailed out, um, that's created the perception of an unfair deal that has proved to be a kind of paying device for politicians on both the left and the right who are able to exploit it. So that's something that has brought anti-bank fervor into politics in a big way. And so your, your question is, well, does the media influence that or do they just reflect that? Um, I think the media, the, the hypothesis guiding the work is that um, the way the media talks about the politics um, 
is with a way that's trying to capture something that will, that will speak to public opinion in a given country, um, but that over time reinforces certain tropes, certain narratives, and makes them dominant narratives. Um, and though the dominance of those narratives eases the, the extent to which they can be recalled um, by new scandals uh, and drawn on to, to get people re-engaged in politics. Because if people aren't re-engaged in politics because finance is boring, then they lose interest and go on to other things like uh, you know understanding uh, what, what's going on with uh, celebrities. So um, the, the role of the media there is that it creates certain ways of talking about politics that can be drawn on, reused, and that can re-energize people's attention. So I was in the States quite recently, and I always find it interesting when I'm in the States and I turn on the TV in the hotel, and I flick onto Fox News or I flick onto CNN, and they're both talking about the very same issue, but they're just framed in completely different ways. So I often wonder, is it the case that people are just self-selecting? If I'm a Republican, I'm just going to watch Fox News, or if I'm a Democrat, I'm going to watch CNN. Is there any research to suggest that you know, it works the other way around, that people actually may change their views based on the media they consume? Well, there certainly, so there's a nice piece recently that came out in the APSR called Persuading the Enemy, um, in which several <clears throat> scholars have looked at this, this question of if you um, force some people to choose media and you give others the choice, you can figure out what is the persuasive effect of something that you feed to someone who would have chosen um, Fox News if they're forced to sort of consume a piece of MSNBC. Um, and that suggests that there, there can indeed be a persuasive effect. Um, now, of course, the problem with all these framing studies, including ones that I'm doing, is you know, how does what happens you know, when people are doing these internet surveys, how does it affect what happens in sort of the real world of news consumption? Well, it suggests that um, people are open to being persuaded. Um, Jamie Druckmann, uh, uh, among many others, but I, I would say he, he kind of is, has been leading in this field, has shown that um, Strong frames can win over uh, partisan pre-commitments, strong frames being ones that are resonant and available. Um, uh, if uh, you are not in a highly polarized environment, the more you get in a highly polarized environment, the less people are willing to uh, reflect on uh, you know, whether they might be wrong, whether they might want to change their views. Because the more you get into a, a polarized environment, the more you think about what some people call effective polarization, um, and where it's just all about my feelings and, and my tribe. And so even if I don't buy the argument of my tribe, I, I try to sell it anyway. So um, the US is certainly a place that's uh, moving towards greater polarization. Um, and it's an open question, which uh, we will see again tested in 2020, the extent to which people can be moved, how much there is a sort of movable center, um, and how much there are just these extremes that have to be mobilized. So you presented <clears throat> very interesting research today in our seminar at the UCD School of Politics and with the Jean Monnet Center of Excellence on, this, on your Banklash project. It's a great title. Um, you might tell our listeners some of the findings so far from that project that you presented today. Well, so Banklash is a, um, is a project uh, that's funded by the European Research Council um, to look at understanding the, the different elements of how people have reacted to 2008 um, and the financial crisis and how banks have come to be perceived in politics. And one big part of the project is about understanding what the media looks like um, and, and, and how we see the media fr framing politics differently uh, in different countries. Um, and one part of it is about uh, the policy change that you get, um, the strategies of implementation that are followed after big uh, policies are adopted over time, how much um, attrition do you get, if you like, in, in the extent to which regulation demands things uh, out of bankers under different levels of um, 
public scrutiny. And then the third part, which is uh, what I presented a little bit on today, some really preliminary pilot results, um, is about the sort of stories that, um, that get people to change their minds on, on financial regulation. Um, and this is very early days, and I wouldn't want to make any sweeping conclusions, but um, a hypothesis we're, we're, we're following that has some um, indicative evidence in what we've looked at so far uh, is that telling a story about um, scandals, financial scandals, um, in the context of um, the way that uh, an analysis of how the interest of ordinary citizens may not uh, be congruent with those of the banks uh, is much more persuasive in changing minds than a sob story about the, um, the travails that a particular family or individual has had at the, the hands of a rapacious bank. And there are unfortunately many stories like that that you can draw on, uh, and they get drawn on in, in many different uh, countries to tell stories about banking. But telling a story about banking like that that's about individual um, <coughs> uh, suffering and unfairness makes uh, readers really angry, but it tends not to change their... Um, their, their financial uh, regulation preferences, nor does it really change their perception of the difference in interests between, um, between banks and the public uh, or their trust in banks. It just makes them angry. Um, and so uh, anger in the absence of interest change doesn't seem to do very much. But if you present it as a scandal, <clears throat> there is more of a probability that people will say, okay, something has to be done about this, as opposed to feeling just morally outraged about it. Well, so if we present the scandal in the context of um, talking at, at how that scandal has sort of structural ramifications, uh, that is to say providing an interpretive lens for the scandal, that's where we find that it makes a difference, even if we don't talk about any people at all. Um, so, so we know from the work of Chantal Ayingard that um, if you generally talk about a subject uh, in, in a thematic way, you might, um, which, which is to say a sort of the structural contextual <coughs> way, um, you might be giving them better information, but um, you're, you're, not, you're less likely to attract their interest. And so um, we're finding that if you tell structural uh, stories, contextual stories, and you link it to a, a, an interest analysis, um, that's more effective than what uh, Iyengar calls the, uh, the episodic stories, uh, which is also what Iyengar finds um, in, in getting people to sort of change their minds, change their ideas about policy. And in the context of Europe, I mean, kind of inter we'll take a step back, international financial crises, the Eurozone crises, sovereign debt crises, ultimately a banking crisis, and the EU response to that banking crisis, <clears throat> I think most people would agree, hasn't been great. Not a whole lot has been done. Is, the re it's, is one of the reasons why the EU has not responded to the banking crisis and developed new laws and legislations precisely because people are not talking about it, that there's no European demos, or is it something else? Well, so um, some people would answer that question by saying, well, things move very slowly in the European mm. Union. Uh, so it's, it's the mother of all deliberative processes. Uh, and you, you, you do see a sort of expression from Germany of a, a renewed interest mm. in thinking about um, having a deposit insurance at a Europe-wide level, which is certainly a change in position um, from what Germany has said in the past. Um, but, but there's another story that is... Um, <coughs> Uh, banks have played the game of uh, sort of allowing uh, individual governments to legislate, knowing they were going to legislate, um, and pushing the EU not to do anything. Um, and so this is the story of the, the Lecon and structural reforms, which sort of died of lack of salience, if, if I may use sort of that term. 
um, because they, they you know, pushed forward other measures about banking union and the, the banking union measures became much more talked about and Lecon and structural reform uh, kind of died. So um, right now, banking union is a very incomplete project. Um, I've written an article arguing that mm-hmm. this project uh, with, with, the, with, with the colleague, um, that it's a project that's very much um, driven by the interests of large banks. Um, and that uh, in, in that sense, sort of what Europe has from banking union is something that's very conducive to the growth of its big uh, internationally world-beating banks. Um, and so I think that's, that's where we are in Europe. It's hard to say where we'll go, but without um, public scrutiny, I think that that's the system we're likely to stick with. Because that's somewhat counterintuitive in the sense that most people would agree that too big to fail banks were at the source of the international crises. And therefore, the policy response might have been to avoid a situation where banks get too big to fail, which effectively means that they're socializing their losses. But the policy response by the EU has effectively to generate the conditions for more international too big to fail banks. How did we get there? Well, uh, that's a good question. I'm not so sure it's counterintuitive if you started out with the position that the banks were always likely to win. Um, And so I think what we've seen is kind of incomplete pushback um, in different countries against too big to fail banks. Uh, Too big to fail banks have marshaled the argument, very large banks have marshaled the argument that in fact uh, they're really good for the economy because they diversify risk within themselves. Um, And they've had varying levels of success across countries. Um, And so the understanding the sort of varying levels of success is one of the the projects that Banklash is trying to undertake because I'm not sure we entirely know. Um, I would argue that in certain countries it's it's likely that um, a few uh, resonant ways of thinking about um, bankers and and what banks have done have led to some structural reform that has had had an impact even if it's not the sort of world-changing structural reform that would have broken down too big to fail banks. So how would you assess the EU's response to the financial crises and the type of post-crisis regulations that have been introduced? I would assess them uh, as slow, incomplete, and unsatisfying. Yeah. And do you think that's likely to change, or is it basically dependent upon a shift in national preferences amongst member states? Well, um, Assuming that the current politics goes along the lines that it looks like it's going to, the EU is about to go through a big change with losing um, uh, the United Kingdom. Um, and I think that the, di- the, the direction of travel in the EU is very hard to say um, as a result of that. Um, on the one hand, I think that the EU has been able to put off a certain number of crises that it had internally in its system because of uh, the Brexit situation. Um, and then we'll have to confront those crises. And it may just be that um, a, a couple of existential con- crises confront Europe soon. An- another more potentially positive scenario, especially for Eurofederalists, is the idea that um, the loss of the uh, UK will give an impulsion to um, a-, a positive push towards more uh, integration. Uh, and certainly that's what um, Emmanuel Macron would like to see. Um, and in that case, you know, um, banking union could be one vessel for that greater integration. And do you think anything will change with Christine Lagarde as head of the European Central Bank? Or is it just going to be business as usual? Uh, you know, I think that um, 
The European Central Bank has uh, been one of the actors over the course of the last 10 years that has distinguished itself by um, the exceptional performance uh, that, that Mario Draghi has given us. Now, um, I, I have colleagues who write about the sort of problems of, of, of quantitative easing and what, what, what that's doing to distort uh, various parts of the market, and, and that may well be true. Um, but the, the, the ECB that we've had has um, you know, kept things from getting to a lot worse situation, so I uh, wish Christine Lagarde good luck. Mm -hmm. um, I, I'm not really sure what we should expect from her regime, and I, I wouldn't expect dramatic change. I think it's interesting that we're moving away from having uh, a trained economist as head of the bank, um, and I, I think it'll be very interesting to watch um, what that direction uh, presages for other central banks, or whether it's portrayed as, um, if something were to go wrong and the ECB be blamed for it, uh, it would be interesting to see if economists say, well, see, I told you so, you've got to put one of us in charge. Hmm. And we might just finish up on this, this last question, comment, which is, again, related to the central bank and financial market regulation. I mean, it's often said, particularly within our field of political science, political economy, central banks are independent from government. And there's a whole variety of reasons why government delegate monetary policy to independent technical decision makers in the central bank. But it seems to me that one of the questions that needs to be asked in the aftermath of the crises is to what extent are central banks independent from the financial market? That's a really good question, um, and it's, it's not one on which I've done a lot of work. Um, so Desmond King and Larry Jacobs have written a really interesting book on this uh, where um, they uh, essentially uh, say that the Federal Reserve has found itself very much as a, um, a tool of finance, um, and it's, it's, it's policy choices which... Uh, the Fed always portrays as sort of impartial choices to keep the economy going given sluggish demand um, are represented by King and Jacobs as being things that, you know, benefit players in the financial markets. Um, and I think there's a lot of work that needs to be done on polit by political scientists on this. I don't agree with King and Jacobs on every point, um, but I think it's a huge uh, area of uh, spending that is happening somewhat below the radar. And so if you like, um, what central banks are doing is the, the quiet politics of the future. And so uh, we need to put more attention on it. Okay, Pepper. Well, thank you very much for your time. Aiden, really a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you.